0: Well, people today often feel that the Christian faith involves a negative approach to life. They many times feel that we have kind of a glass-half-empty approach, and we're constantly saying the world's going from bad to worse, and only the return of Christ and the end of the world is going to change anything. And uh, that's a common attitude today towards Christians and those of us who are willing to call ourselves Christians. After all, we... Hear regularly from leaders in our society and education and science and industry that we live in a vastly different world today than has ever existed before. And there are so many opportunities to make so much progress. And in many ways, they're right. You know, um, we are in the midst of a technological change and advancement that really is unparalleled in human history. The invention of the computer some 40 years ago, really, of the microchip that makes the computer possible, has uh, allows us to do things that were unimaginable before. And they're changing human life in so many ways so that the phone that you have in your pocket right now has more computing power than the computer that was sent to the moon in 1968. And we're in the midst of medical changes that are... changing the whole direction of human life and human health. Uh, the impact of simple inventions like the MRI is great and robotic surgery and all of these things. And you know, diseases like leukemia, that when I was a child, leukemia was a death sentence. And today we routinely seem to be able to uh, deal with it and put it into remission. The possibilities medically seem to be endless. And we're experiencing social changes unlike previous generations. Uh, Things that have only been talked about are, are now coming to pass. The status of women is changing tremendously in the whole world. The structures of society that have been static for so many generations, like the very definitions of what marriage and family is, they're dramatically changing. And all of this, in all of this, Christianity is often looked as a force that's holding back the forces of progress that are being made in so many different realms. And they say to us, why why do you always see evil in the world? Why do you think that everything's so bad? It's in part because of what we read in this passage that Jody just read to us. Verse 3, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, from the present evil age. And there you have it. Our own book uses this phrase, the present evil age, in description of the age in which we live. And we need to think about this for a few minutes. Why is it that there is this decidedly negative cast? to the Christian message. Is there really one? Uh, What does it mean? Why is it there? The Bible does, at points, focus on the greatness of God and the grandeur of God. And you can think of places, particularly in the Old Testament, in the Psalms that describe the, the greatness of what God has done, the beauty and the wonder of creation, the incredible way in which he's gifted the human race. But with the coming of Jesus, there is a a distinct change, and that which is found in the Old Testament comes to the fore, this emphasis that is clear and unambiguous that there's something drastically wrong, something drastically evil about the world in which we live. And why is there this emphasis on the present evil age? Does that mean that our approach is negative? Does it put Christians in the category of those who are always whining about how bad things are, but not doing anything to remedy the situation. Before we answer that, I want to, first of all, consider just this phrase, the present evil age, and kind of put it in its context so I understand what what it means and what it doesn't mean. It's sort of commonplace among human beings to acknowledge that children, as they grow up, are very optimistic. They look forward to life and all of the opportunities that they have, and they want to see progress. But old people, they're looking back on life, and old people tend to be whiners and complainers. And, you know, that's just a common idea that is sometimes borne out. I mean, I remember as a child sitting at my, parent, my grandparents' house, and they were playing bridge with their old friends. And, and there they were talking about how the world was going to hell in a handbasket in 1963, you know. And... Um, morals, and government, and business affairs, and all of society, things were getting worse and worse, and, and it was so good when they were young, and now I'm a grandfather, and I find myself sometimes sitting around my friends saying, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and things are getting worse and worse. Well, that might be kind of a commonplace, very basic understanding of how life works. That's not what this phrase is about. When it says the present evil age, it doesn't mean the present evil generation, like It doesn't mean at all that 2017 is somehow worse than the good old days in 1965. That's not what it's talking about at all. One of the ways that you can understand the overall message of the Bible is to use three words. And those words are creation, fall, and redemption. Creation, fall, redemption describes the way the Bible moves from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. However, it's not a way of dividing up the scripture that is in any way equal, because creation is comprised of two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, that tell us about the original state of this world. The fall is made up of one chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, and then redemption is from Genesis 4 until the end of the Bible. And actually, it's only the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, that talk about the completion of redemption, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is a way of understanding the Bible, creation, fall, and redemption. It's important to understand that this phrase, the present evil age, describes everything that goes on between Genesis 4 and Revelation chapter 20. That is the present evil age. The the time from the fall to the final redemption is the present evil age. It's everything that goes on there and during all that long period of what we think of as history, during that time period... Some parts of the world experience things differently than other parts at different times. Sometimes there are wars in one place and there's peace in another place. Sometimes there's great tribulation for Christians and believers in some parts of the world, but other places have relative safety. But overall, as history unfolds, it's the present evil age. That's how the Bible approaches things. Another way to think of the Bible's message that defines redemption, that whole long period between Genesis 4 and Revelation 21, is um, to see it as as comprised of two words, two phrases that the Bible uses, this age and the age to come. That idea arises in the prophets like Daniel. And then it's built on in the New Testament. This age describes the present evil age. The age to come is the completion of redemption in the new heavens and the new earth. That's another way of thinking about how the Bible unfolds itself. In the present evil age, that is God's title, his description of human life after the fall and before the new heavens and new earth, the amount of evil and wickedness and goodness that's present in the world, waxes and wanes as history unfolds. Human life is not static, but it's always moving and changing. Different people and places are experiencing different things. But overall, God says that human life on this planet is not what it was meant to be. Now, there's a reason why the Bible has to inform us that we live in a world that is not as God intended it to be. And the reason is that, left to ourselves, we may not gather that. After all, we're born in material bodies, we live in a material world, and we find that the world is perfectly suited for our existence here. We have all that we need in order to exist and sustain life. And that is all that we see around us, all that we can sense with our senses. So even when we look at the world and, and, and all that's around us, and we find that there are things that are not as we would like them to be. There are accidents, there's sickness and disease, there are social problems in the world. We have a tendency left to ourselves to think, well, this world is all that we have, and we have to make our way through it, and, and so we should do the best that we can, and we think of life as being kind of a project that's in an unfinished state. Sickness and evil is not really evil, it's simply it's a project undone, and we human beings are here to finish it, to carry it forward, to make progress. Now, what happens is, because left to ourselves and material bodies, we would think that this is everything there is, the Bible is a breaking through, God breaking through from a different realm, the spiritual realm, that we could not know with any certainty unless someone from there revealed to us the truth. All philosophers could deduce in different ways that there must be something beyond the material and they have done that for centuries and talked about it and argued about it but the only certain knowledge would be if someone broke through and of course the Bible says that Jesus was the pre-existent second person of the Trinity who himself was inserted into time when he was born of the Virgin that he says I came down from heaven Not to do my will, but to do my Father's will. Telling us that he existed before, that he has certain knowledge, understanding, that he wants to impart to us. So the Bible informs us over and over that this world is not all there is. There's a realm beyond us. If God didn't break through and tell us that, we would be left to ourselves. We would figure that this is all there is, this material world around us. Now, we have to add to that one more thing the Bible tells us. It tells us that the human heart resonates with any understanding that there is something beyond the material. What I mean is when when we hear that there is a spiritual realm, that there is something different, that there's a God, that this God is perfect, there's something in the human heart that, that says, I was built for a world different than the one in which I find myself. I was not built for a world in which there is sickness and death and sorrow and all of the neglect and abuse and broken relationships that I find here. We have a longing for it, and that we're capable of doing something with that. The human heart longs for there to be something beyond this world, and yet many people convince themselves, well, that's just my existential longing for meaning when there really is no meaning. My existential fear of death when really death is just the end of all things. And, and so I create this longing for something that doesn't really exist. While other people, they connect their longing with the reality of a spiritual realm, the Bible tells us. Now, there's one more fact we need to add to that. And that is, as we move through the world, many people, I hope many of us are among them, we try to make this world a better place. We figure that this world is the one we are given and so we ought to try to improve it in some way, and we can use education, better parenting, more wise leadership. We figured that if these things could only be harnessed in the way that they need to, that the world would slowly emerge out of its primordial darkness and move into some kind of fullness and peace and, and all of that. That's how life works, the Bible says, and yet here's the Bible's judgment on that. Here's how it evaluates all of that. It says, we know that we are from God, 1 John chapter 5. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, there you have it. Again, this negative perspective, the whole world lies and the power of the evil one. The Bible asserts that the problem is not a lack of social of education, not a lack of social programs or medical or technological advancement that that's not going to solve the problem that the problem is inside the human heart. There's something inside the human heart the Bible tells us, God tells us that is bent It's twisted from what it was meant to be. So when you put billions of human beings together with this bent heart inside of us, you're going to get a bent world. And and society will develop so that our, our experience of evil is not just inside our hearts, but it becomes in the very social structures that we develop as we go through this world. Well, let's put these two ideas side by side. On one hand, you have our present generation's view... And it's been the generations that have passed have had this same view. The view that we live in an incomplete, unfinished world that's been undergoing continual progress through generations. And yes, they say that the world has been characterized by a primitive past, and there was superstition, and, and, and lack of medical understanding and technology, and there were wars instead of mutual conversation and peace. And what we need to do is take a hold of that and be a part of making changes in that in the way that we live so that the world will continue to progress upward and upward and become more complete, more full as it should be. On the other hand, you have Christian faith. And Christian faith says, yes, there is progress. Every generation pushes the ball farther down the field. That's true. But... um, it seems that the progress is always one step forward, one step back. Every point of progress is accompanied by a, a, a similar kind of drawback that the progress makes that affects human life. So you can think of um, the splitting of the atom. The splitting of the atom leads to the possibility and reality in some cases of abundant. And relatively cheap energy that can care for millions of people. And it also brings the unspeakable terror of nuclear war. You can think of the invention of the automobile. The automobile was a tremendous invention. Just think what life was like before that. You were stuck in a community and it was so hard to get out of that. And the automobile allows people to travel long distances to work and all of that. And the automobile brings pollution, a terrible problem that we have so much trouble dealing with. The automobile has also been a part, along with many other factors, of of something that has happened in the last 100, 150 years. And that is the slow breakdown of the family and of human relationships. And and it's contributed to that because children no longer need to live near their parents. They, They can travel much farther than you can travel on a horse or on foot, And people can live far, far away. What I'm saying is that, yes, there's all kinds of progress in the world, and we ought to take advantage of it and use it. But all progress from the Bible's perspective is simply like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. All you're doing is you're making some people more comfortable for some period of time. But it doesn't deal with the broken heart. It doesn't deal with the ultimate problem. So the Bible, you see, without any reservation with complete assurance, reminds us again and again that this world is not all there is, that the problems in this world cannot be overcome by human ingenuity, as great as that is. There's no external changes that we can make to human life that will change the ultimate problem, which is the human heart. Now, the Bible also presents a solution, and this passage has it. It is true that it refers in the passage to the present evil age, But again, this is a a problem-solution approach to life, and it says that uh, not simply that things are going from bad to worse, but it's an alternate solution to what the world offers, because the world also sees a problem and offers a solution. The general solution and the general problem is that life, this world, material world, is in an unfinished, incomplete state. And the solution is for us to grab the inevitable progress, and to push it forward as we move through life to allow human society to continue to evolve. So technology and medicine and science and social programs, all those are ways for humans to push forward to make the inevitable progress. We only need to see the opportunity and grab for it. This world and this age is not evil, just incomplete, just unfinished. That is on this side, and the Bible Is on the other side, and we have the solution offered by God here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The problem is the present evil age. There is something broken in human life that is beyond the human capacity to repair it. Technology, science, social programs, none of these things, while they can make external changes, some of which are helpful and necessary, they cannot deal with the ultimate problem in human life. The problem is beyond human capacity because the problem has to do with the human heart. So the focus in this passage is not so much on the problem, that's just a phrase that's thrown in to remind us of the solution, Uh, the solution is first, Jesus Christ who gave himself. He gave himself. This is a phrase that fell first from the lips of Jesus himself in uh, Mark chapter 10. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for many. And and that became a characteristic way of understanding what Jesus did when he came. He gave himself on our behalf. Rather than us doing something ourselves to remedy the problem, God himself did something for us. He fought the battle for us like the old hymn that's not sung anymore. Oh, loving wisdom of our God when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the conflict came. And the idea is that the first Adam brought ruin, the second representative man, the second Adam, comes, and he fights on our behalf and for our rescue, and that's what the gospel is. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Now, I want you to note in the passage, that's not all there is to it. It says he gave himself for our sins, not simply he gave himself for us. So it it underlines something very important. It's the idea of substitution. This is very basic to the message of the New Testament. You know, you think think back about World War One. I didn't know much about World War One, so I decided to read some things about it. And I was thinking that there were these four basic armies that were the Allied cause uh, against the enemy, and they were uh, France, Great Britain, Italy, and the United States that came in at the very end of the war. Now, you can, that was one of the bloodiest wars in history. Like They just lined up against each other in France for about four years and killed each other. And um, millions of people died. In one sense, all of the Allied soldiers who died, every one of them died for us. They died for our freedom. If that war had been lost, the world would politically be in a completely different place than it is today. It would greatly have changed our experience of life. They died for us. However, they didn't die in our place because none of us were going to go to war in World War I. None of us were even there, were even alive. You see, Christ died not just for us in a general sense. He died in our place. That's the idea that he died as our substitute. The difference is that Christ became the substitute for his people. He died for our sins so that we have the assurance that whatever our unique and particular sins are, whatever sins of thought, of word, whatever immoral, unethical deeds we've committed in life, even though God was completely aware of all those things, more aware than we are of them, he blotted them out in the blood of Christ. That's substitution. Christ gave himself for our sins, but it says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the third part of the solution. You might say, well, I thought that he he died so that I could go to heaven. And yes, that's true, but that's not all. In fact, in one sense, dying and going to heaven is merely a consequence. It's an intended consequence It's an important consequence of the death of Christ, but it is only a a byproduct of the death of Christ. This tells us the primary purpose he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. If you think that all there is to this Christian thing is pie in the sky when you die, you're going to miss the real significance of the death of Christ. In fact, you may miss it completely because you may misunderstand what it was all about, He came to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, how does God do this? How is he delivering us from the present evil age through the death of Jesus? Well, the Bible sees it this way. When Jesus Christ came, he appeared from the presence of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, and he came into this sinful world. He came to reveal things to us that we wouldn't otherwise know. He revealed to us the character of God. He revealed to us the feelings of God about human beings. He revealed to us our sin. And, and he, reveals, uh, he revealed the values of heaven in things like the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings. These are the values by which heaven is represented. So when Jesus' is advanced man, John the Baptist, came, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist said, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then when Jesus came on the scene in fulfillment of John's ministry, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. Now is the time. I'm setting into motion all that redemption means. Theologians would say at that point during his life and his ministry, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, we're told, if you think of the end of the Bible, in its fulfillment, the presence of God, the absence of sin, the kingdom of God is characterized by no more crying, no more tears, No more pain, no sickness, no disease. And what Jesus did in his ministry was he gave a foretaste of that. That's why he inaugurated it. When Jesus was present, there was the healing of diseases. There was the raising of the dead. All of the things that will characterize the kingdom of God were found in the presence of Jesus because after all, he's the one who's going to fulfill the whole thing. And and so what happened is, he, he set in motion and he began to call to himself a group of people, believers, whom we now say are folded together into the church, the people of God. He called us together in order to do something specific. That is, he wanted to shape us to live by the values of this kingdom, which isn't yet, but has been set in motion. So what happens is, from the Bible's perspective, there are two kingdoms, in this world that are presently in conflict, there's the kingdoms of this world, and they are, from the Bible's perspective, the present evil age. And then, on the other hand, there's the church, the people of God, the kingdom of God in its present form, and not complete, but adherence, living, seeking to live by the rules of the kingdom. And these two groups represent in the world two sets of values two ways of believing, two ways of living. Now, these two realms aren't completely separate. They overlap to some degree. And the reason we know that is we're able to communicate with those in the other realm. We're able to talk to them and use the same words at times, love and forgiveness and tolerance and all of these things that we can use the same words. And sometimes there's overlap in so many different areas. These two kingdoms are completely different. They differ. Now you can say that in a sense the age to come that which is going to be in the end started in motion with the coming of Jesus the first time so that Christians are people who live like caught between two ages. We experience by the Spirit the power of the age to come. We hold through the scriptures, the values of the age to come, and yet we ourselves experience sin and tiredness and sickness and death that won't be a part of the age to come. So we're in between these two things, but we represent in the church, not not a building, but the people of God become like an embassy in the world that represents a different realm, a different way of thinking, a different set of values. Now, what this means is that, God is working in our lives right now in order to shape us and form us to reflect the values of life that will be operative in the end. And we have to learn to do that. And a lifetime is too short in the context of God's people to find ourselves being shaped and formed to develop those kinds of beliefs and values. But it's necessary for that to happen. And our present experience becomes that experience of being delivered from the present evil age by the development of values and beliefs and behaviors that are different. So the present evil age involves a set of beliefs, Most basic to that is the idea that this material world is all there is. So we human beings, we're the measure of all that exists. The human mind, the human will reigns supreme over life. But the belief system of the kingdom of God says no. There is a God who rules over all things. He is the one who is meant to reign supreme over the human mind and the human will. And that God orders life and submission to his will is the best way to live. There's a different set of beliefs. There's a different set of values. The present evil age tells us this life is all there is, so you better grab for every ounce of happiness you can. You better squeeze out of life every ounce of pleasure and happiness that you can. The kingdom values say that this life is not all there is. The, the goal of life is not living on a never-ending escalator of desire and new experiences, you can sacrificially serve God now because we know that we will have opportunity in the future in the kingdom of God to do things undreamt of now. The present evil age says it's a set of behaviors. You ought to find a willing partner and go out and enjoy life and experience everything that you can in life because when it's over, it's over. This is all there is. And the kingdom of God says, God has designed human life to behave in a certain way. And sometimes that means self-control. Sometimes that means channeling our behavior in certain ways that we might find difficult to do, but it's meant to function for his glory, for his honor. We need to trust him and obey him. And sometimes we're not very clear on those two things and how distinct they are, this present evil age and the kingdom of God. But after all, it is what we sing about and it's what we pray about. It's what we read in the Bible. It's what God calls us to do. Jesus came and died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now I'm afraid that God's people today in the United States particularly are too afraid of the world. We feel so besieged and hounded by the world and its attitudes. We're told over and over that we're negative and unloving and so otherworldly that we won't, you know, be involved in the things that we need to be involved in. So we feel harassed and helpless. So what it seems the church often sets out to do is to show that we can be just like the rest of the world. It sets out to show that. We're not really what you think we are. We are so much like you in so many ways. And what we do is we spend the majority of our time marketing ourselves to attract people so that they'll like us and they'll think that we're okay people. But I want you to imagine this morning a a person, a a woman, let's say. Let's say a young woman who has um, a couple of children. She's a single mother and she's working so hard to try to take care of these two children And and at at the same time, to go to work, she had a husband. He left a couple of years ago. She hasn't heard from him or seen him since. She doesn't have any idea where she is. She can look back on her life, and she can see that she made many mistakes. She, she, She knows that there was a point where she was really enjoying life, but her life took a turn. She had children, and she grew up, and he didn't. And so she's left on her own. Life is getting hard. It's not getting any easier. Imagine that this young woman decides one day, I'm going to go to church. Now, she may go because some childhood memory or she's invited by a friend or she sees an advertisement. Who knows why? But she decides, I'm going to go to church. Maybe what I need is what the church is all about. So she shows up on a Sunday morning. Now, I need to let you know that what she thinks when she comes in is she has an assumption, and her assumption is this is what we're going to tell her. We're going to tell her, not in these words, but in the way we act, we're going to tell her, become religious like us, and God will accept you. You know, Do the right things uh, that, that you should be doing, and, and um, God will help you in life. And, and she figures that that's what I'm going to hear. Maybe religion can do something for me. Now, of course, we know that's not our message. Like, we don't sing songs that say, I once was lost, but now I'm religious. I mean, that's not, you know, we realize it's not just by getting religion, whatever that is, that somehow something changes for us. It's a lot more than that. But in our zeal to help this young woman who is struggling with so many things, to help her know that it's not religion, it's not just knowing more about the Bible, it's not really our classes, it's not how great our pastor is. I mean, obviously, you all know that here. I mean, that would be like the first thing. He's not that great, you'd say. But sometimes, sometimes, because that, we give this message, Message. And, and the message is, we're just like you, only we're forgiven. We're just like you, only we're forgiven. Now, I have to tell you, if that's if that's our message, I think the young woman ought to think to herself, if you're just like me, only forgiven, that must be pretty miserable because I'm miserable. That, that's not at all what her heart longs to hear. But what she assumes they're going to say is, get religion and... and it will will do something for you. But that's not what we want to give her anymore either. If our message is, we're not like you, or we're just like you, only we're forgiven, then this verse, verse four, doesn't really mean anything. It could be cut out of the Bible. Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. That's more than just being forgiven. As wonderful and great as that is, that's not really our message. Our message is, apart from divine grace, we are just like you. But God has worked in our lives to bring us to Jesus Christ, and in him we have found acceptance and peace with God, and he teaches us to give that to each other and fellowship with each other, that acceptance and that peace with God. And what we find is that the deepest needs of our hearts can be met in Christ. And so now we still struggle. We struggle with the same things you're struggling with, But in our struggles, we know that God is with us and other people are with us and he's changing our hearts to respond differently to life's challenges than we did in the past. I mean, this thing that we're about is is not just pie in the sky when you die. Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. If you are just what you were before you became a Christian and you've become a Christian, you've been a Christian for some time, then you're not being delivered from the present evil age. To be delivered from the present evil age means, at least, to be developing, as difficult as it is, the values and the beliefs and the behaviors of the kingdom of God, and to be a part of other people helping you to do that. That's what Jesus came to do. And as we'll see in this book, that's what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Again, Father, as we come to you, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to think more deeply than just what we experience in terms of forgiveness and peace with you as, as great as that is, as important as that is. But we would understand that your work inside of us is so much deeper than that and that you would give to us which only you can do, a longing to experience that, a hunger and thirst that says, I want to experience the deliverance from the power of this evil age in which I find myself, this fallen world, this remaining sin inside of me. I want to experience something different. And I pray that you would help us as individuals to look for that, And you would allow us in our small groups to talk about that. We pray that you would do that. And you would grant by the resources of your spirit that we would seek you. And as you have promised, we would find you. We pray this in Jesus' name.